And the sermon will be given by our very good friend, Mark Wellman, today. So I encourage you to speak with Mark afterwards if you haven't had a chance to meet Mark. This uh, picks up in the middle of the Christmas story, so read with me. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that as we look at your word, you would re reveal to all of us a little more of the glory and grace of Christ and what it is it means for each of us to follow him, to trust in him, and to experience his love and grace. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. So I hope you all had a good Christmas. I don't know about you, but did anyone else have a little bit of a wardrobe crisis this Christmas? I, I was getting ready for Christmas Eve service, and I was looking at all the normal Christmas clothes I would wear to a Christmas festivities, and they all looked too hot and clammy to put on, given the weather. And then I had the same experience on Christmas Day. All of the Christmas sweaters were just uh, not built for the climate we got this year, but, but we got through this. Uh, you know, the, the, it's a little disorienting to have a warm Christmas like this where the weather's so warm because, you know, Christmas is supposed to be one of those cozy holidays, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire and Jack Frost nipping at your nose and, and just, you know, where we all bundle up against the cold and, and enjoy the, the warmth of our families and the warm comfort food and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but And that goes even to the way we celebrate Christmas. You know, there's nothing cuter and nothing cozier than looking at the uh, 
the kids at this church dress up in their bathrobes and put sheets over their head and, and, and pretend to be angels and uh, shepherds and sheep and Mary, and even, even one of them was the star in the east. I don't know if you uh, remember that, but, but, you know, there's something about the way we celebrate Christmas. It's all about the cute and the cuddly and the cozy. And I think that that hides from us the cold, hard reality of what Christmas really was. You know, even in Away in a Manger, that song we just sang, there's that, that line that uh, the cattle are lowing and the baby awakes, but because Jesus is divine, he doesn't cry. You know, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I think that's, that's probably one of the worst lines in all the Christmas carols out there, personally. But uh, because hopefully, if, or presumably, if Jesus was a healthy newborn baby, when he woke up, he cried. And people knew he was awake and needed to be held and needed to be taken care of. And as you read the Christmas story, you realize that it's actually not a cozy, cut, cuddly, comfortable story, but as Jesus entered this world, he entered a difficult, dark, and dangerous place where things were chaotic and things were going wrong, and it was in the midst of that that he, that he was born and grew and lived and became who he was. You know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, issued a decree that a census be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone had to go to their hometown or their ancestral town to be registered. Even Joseph, who was married to a woman who was about to give birth, he and his wife had to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, a a three-day journey by mule, because they couldn't get out of this trip. And then, you know, and here's this young couple, and I'm sure Joseph arrives in this town where all his distant aunts and uncles and cousins live because he belonged to that house and that line, and he's expecting in the Middle Eastern culture, you know, it's a hospitable, supposed to be a hospitable culture where you take in your family and friends when they show up at the door, but nobody took them in. And so they were consigned to a stable that was the best they could do, even though it's this young couple with this, uh, with his uh, pregnant spouse. And then to make matters worse, they're sitting there saying, I can't believe here we are all alone in my hometown. No one's taken us in. And, you know, those, those, uh, understated words of the Bible, the time came for the baby to be born. It's like any of you who have been around when the time came for a baby to be born know that's a time for panic. But, uh, Joseph was there alone with Mary. The time came and, and uh, you know the story. The baby was born. But there's a, a realism, a harsh realism in it, and a, a reality to the story of Jesus all the way through. And I, I think it helps us realize what the life of Jesus really was like. That, you know, that the, the uh, children's Bibles and the, the uh, Christmas pageant versions of that, of the life of Jesus really severely edit the reality of that and also it prepares us for the reality of what the life of following Jesus is going to be like. So what I want to look at first is the problems and the pain that Jesus entered into. Like I mentioned, Jesus was born under the reign of Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, and he was also born under the local king, who was sort of the local provincial puppet king, Herod, who was terrified to hear a rumor that the Messiah had been born. And, and in fact, when he heard that, he said, I've got to find out where this, this so-called Messiah is so I can go and eliminate him. 
Remember that? That was the story. And then Mary and Joseph, this, this young couple, are, are forced to go on the run. They're displaced when she goes into labor. You know, those of you who've been around the birth of a child, you want to be close to home, close to your home doctor, close to family and friends when, when that's going to happen. But they're, they're a three days journey from, from home when that happens. And, uh, they don't receive the, the hospitality of their family. The circumstances seem to all be working against them. The life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, was no fairy tale. It was entering into the difficulties and the challenges of this world. Just like your life, I'm sure, and your life stages has been no fairy tales. You know, all of us, as we go through life, we go through times when various authorities are abusing their power in a way that... that disturbs or ruins our life. We go through times when family and friends let us down and people we thought we could depend on, we can't depend on. We go through times when circumstances don't work out the way we had hoped that they should. And yet in the midst of these, God's plan is at work. You know, in in Philippians 1, it says one of the things that it means to, to know Christ or to follow Christ, it says, is to know Christ the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. What did it mean for God to become man? What does the Christmas story mean? It means God became one of us, a little baby who wakes up and cries, just like each of us did, presumably, when we were little babies and we woke up. It means to become a person who is subject to family and friends who misunderstand them, who authorities who misuse their power against them. All of those things are involved in entering into this world. I mean, here was Joseph, here was, here was Mary, and they were subject to all these forces that were beyond their control. All the problems and the pain of this world got more acute and more severe as they were used by God to bring his son into the world. But in the midst of the problems, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the fact that there was a murderous king who wanted to kill their son, they experienced, in the Christmas story, they experienced the presence and the protection of God. I mean, think about this. Here's two, essentially two country bumpkins who have come to the big city. Two kids from West Virginia have been dropped at Grand Central Station, okay? And the FBI is looking for them and they've got a newborn baby, what chance do they have of escaping? You'd think, essentially, nil. But Mary and Joseph, even though Herod wants them, even though all these forces are arrayed against them, they're okay. You know why? Because God is with them. Look at verse 12. It says that the the Magi go and visit visit Mary and Joseph, and then they're going to go back to Herod and say, oh, by the way, you can find the baby at this address. But instead, verse 12 says, says that they were warned, the Magi were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And so they returned to their country by another route. So God was working directly on the wise men to warn them not to go back to Herod, to avoid him so that they don't tip the evil king off to the presence of the baby he wants to destroy. And then God continues to protect them. God continues to be with them. The very next verse, it says, After they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take this child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. 
Stay there till I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So the angel of the Lord is even dealing directly with Joseph and protecting Mary and Joseph and this newborn baby. So even in the midst of the problems, in the midst of all the contingency, all of the difficulties, all the, all the harsh circumstances they are dealing with, God's presence and God's protection is there. Another way to say it is even though this murderous king who's going to stop at nothing to kill their son is after them, they are absolutely perfectly safe because God is protecting them. So even though following Christ means that we'll find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we'll find ourselves in harsh situations where things don't seem to be working out, the other thing that following Christ means is that in the midst of those hard circumstances, in the midst of those difficulties, God's presence and God's protection is with us. And that's the promise that we can hold on to as those who follow Christ. Even when circumstances seem overwhelming, God has a plan and God's angels, God's providence are working as they did on behalf of Joseph to protect and to make sure that God's people are safe in the midst of this. So there's two sides of this. And once, on the one hand, as, as uh, Jesus said to his followers later, in this world, you will have trouble. This world is full of trouble for all those who will follow Christ. That's part of life in this world. But the other side of it is he is with us in this world. He'll protect us in this world. One of the places I go back to in my own life is, is Psalm 23. You know, the, the, the shepherd psalm. It's one of the most familiar places. And, and that, that verse where he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for God is with me. And, you know, I, I look at that sometimes and I say, you know, I wish it said, yea, though I walk near the valley of the shadow of death, I'll avoid it because God will guide me to go around it. But it doesn't say that. What does it say? It says we're going to find ourselves sometimes in the valley of the shadow. But even there, we need not fear because God is with us. The story of Christmas, the promise of Christmas is that Jesus has walked into the valley of the shadow before us. And so when we find ourselves there, his presence is with us, his protection is with us, and even there, we need not fear. Even when a murderous, genocidal king is chasing us and our child, we don't need to worry about anything because God is one step ahead of the king. So we see the problems and pain of this world that Jesus entered into, and Jesus will walk with with us through as well, and the promise of protection, that even in the midst of the problems and pain, we are protected, we are safe. And then third, the perfect plan and the promise of God's plan being fulfilled. You know, the story of Jesus, some, some, some people refer to the story of Jesus' life as the greatest story ever told, and certainly it is. The most important story, the most crucial story, and, and the most well-known story, the most celebrated story in the history of human civilization, the story of Jesus. It's the greatest story ever told. And even though this little part about Mary and Joseph, if you just take it on its own terms based on the original sources, it's a, it's a pretty a pretty confusing story. You ask, what is going on here? When you see it in light of the whole we realize it's part of a narrative of God working all things to accomplish his purpose 
and to redeem the world through this baby that was born, the child of Mary, many, many years ago. Now, you know, there's there's four different versions of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Our story's taken from Matthew. And one of Matthew's favorite words, one of Matthew's themes, is the idea that that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament pointed to from the very beginning. And so one of Matthew's words that he uses more than any other writer is the word fulfilled. So this was fulfilled. And three times in this passage, he says that everything that's happening to Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. In verse, if you go to verse 15 first, it was uh, the, the warning to Joseph that he needed to flee to Egypt to get out of Israel and and go into exile to avoid to avoid uh, Herod killing his son and you know to to Jewish ears that story would sound like why would the Messiah go back to Egypt that was where they had escaped from many years ago but uh, Joseph goes there and Matthew tells us and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew says, the flight to Egypt and the return from Egypt, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. And then he goes back down to verse uh, 17, that the genocide done by Herod of all the babies born in Bethlehem who were about Jesus' age. Herod goes, and since he can't identify Jesus, he decides he's going to kill all the babies. And... uh, Matthew says, this was the fulfillment of a prophecy too, verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children or refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Even something as awful, as cruel, and as vicious as a king going and killing all these babies was a fulfillment of God's prophecy. So it wasn't outside of the plan of God. It wasn't outside of the knowledge of God, outside of the control of God. It was something that was under God's control, something that was part of his plan, as hard as it is for us to understand. And then then afterwards, finally, Joseph is is told, okay, it's safe to come back to Israel now. And Joseph wants to go back and settle in Judea and Bethlehem, you know, his hometown. And, And, you know, he doesn't want to live out in the in the boondocks anymore, if any of you can understand that. He doesn't want to live there anymore, but he's warned again that, uh, it says, it says verse 22, when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew again to the district of Galilee and went and lived in the town called Nazareth. This was his, his adopted hometown, about 75 miles north of Jerusalem. And so again was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So we see that everything that happened in Jesus' life, every detail of Jesus' life, from the flight to Egypt to the relocation to Nazareth, it was all part of God's plan. But not only that, that's just just the tip of the iceberg. The whole story of the life of Jesus was part of God's plan. The, the, the fact that the Son of God would be born of the Virgin, the, the fact that the Son of God would come and would be the atoning sacrifice for his people. All of this was part of a great plan that had begun to be executed many, many millennia ago. But in the midst of that plan 
taking place, a lot of difficult and tragic and even unbearable things happen. Because the reality is when we're living according to God's plan, when our life is unfolding according to God's plan, that doesn't mean we're not going to face difficulty. It doesn't mean we're not going to face confusion. It doesn't mean, it frankly doesn't mean we're always going to understand why certain things are happening the way they are. In fact, let me put it this way. I think it almost guarantees if we're living our life surrendered to God's plan and God's plan is unfolding in our life, it almost guarantees that a lot of things are going to happen in our life that are completely inexplicable to us in the moment and inexplicable to us a year later and inexplicable to us when we draw our last breath. You know why? Because it's not our plan for our lives. It's his plan for our lives. And wouldn't you expect that God's plan for your life will be greater and more complex and beyond all that you can understand? You know, we have that verse that we go to often, that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Some of you have heard that verse, maybe. Some of you have quoted that, perhaps, from time to time. But, you know, that doesn't promise us that we'll understand how things are working together or why things are working together in the way that they are. You know, sometimes something happens to us on Monday and on Tuesday we say, well, I'm really glad it worked out that way because I can see how God's blessing me through that. But sometimes you go months or years or decades and you still can't understand why something happened the way it did, why why an accident happened, why a loss happened, why 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 a, a job loss happened or, or something like that. Because God's plan is much greater, much more complex, far beyond all that we can ask or imagine. But to follow Christ is to embrace the fact that God has a plan that he executed through his son and that he will execute through each one of those who follow his son. And it's up to us, it's incumbent on us simply to trust in him. I mean, think of the life of Jesus. You guys know the broad outlines of his story. I would imagine he grew up, he became a man, he began to teach, he began to do do miracles, he gathered a following to himself, a following of hundreds or thousands of people at some points, and of 12 people specifically. And it looked like he was going to be the architect of a great revolution. Everything seemed to be falling into place, even as he went into Jerusalem on that that first Palm Sunday. You know, everyone lined the streets and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had great expectations. And then, you know the story, the wheels started to fall off of Jesus' plan, and one of his 12 people in his inner ring decided to betray him. Another one denied him. Then the crowds turned against him, and he was Rather than, rather than overthrowing the authorities that were oppressing his people, he was arrested by those authorities. Rather than being defended by the crowds, the crowds yelled, crucify him. And then, you know the story, he was hung on a cross. At that point, everybody who knew about Jesus, everybody who had listened to Jesus, everybody who had followed Jesus, had seen his miracles and had heard his teaching said, we must have gotten this wrong. We absolutely misunderstood the the work of Jesus. We thought he was something he isn't because, by definition, a Messiah who gets crucified is a failed Messiah. A Messiah who gets humiliated like that, who gets defeated like that, who who can't protect himself, let alone redeem his people, is a Messiah that 
that failed at the task that God had called him to. Nobody understood what it was all about. Nobody understood why he died when he died. Nobody understood the plan of God because it was far beyond their comprehension. It wasn't, Jesus didn't die on the cross because he was less than Peter and James and John and, and his other followers thought he was. He died on the cross because his mission was greater and more glorious than they could imagine. The reality was he had to suffer so that he could conquer suffering. He had to be humiliated so that his glory could be revealed. He had to be forsaken by God so that we could be forgiven by God. He had to experience the curse of God so that we could experience the blessing of God. That was the plan of God from the beginning. That was the plan of God from Christmas. In fact, that was the purpose of God in Christmas. That's why God became a man so that he could live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we could that we deserve to die so that we wouldn't get what we deserved and so that his righteousness his goodness could be credited to us and so the challenge for us knowing that and seeing that is as we go through our lives to trust that as things happen, as we face ups and downs and perhaps health setbacks or career setbacks or confusion in various relationships, to trust and to believe that in each of those and in all of those circumstances, God is doing his will. And we might be frustrated, but God is not frustrated. And our plans might get blown up from time to time, but God's plan doesn't get blown up. In fact, he uses the explosions to accomplish his purpose for your life and for my life. I remember a couple months ago going through a, a difficult circumstance and I was very confused and I, I went and talked to a friend of mine. And I said, this can't be God's will for my life. And he said to me, oh no, I think it must be God's will because it's happening, right? And uh, I've kind of held on to that because from time to time we think we know God's will and then something else happens. And so it turns out that whatever happened, that was God's will and it's up to us not to dictate to God what his will is, but to accept his will and to embrace his will and to live joyfully and confidently under his will. The greatest story ever told didn't end with the Messiah crucified on a cross, as you know. The crucifixion was just set up a setup for his greatest victory, his resurrection from the dead, his defeat of suffering and death and pain and even sin three days later on the first Easter because that was the plan of God. None of his disciples understood that. None of his disciples could comprehend that in the moment, but then after they saw it, after they were given faith, after they were enlightened, they were freed to embrace that and to find their hope there and to find their trust there. And for us, if we follow Christ, what it means to follow Christ is we will bear our crosses. We will have our confusion. We will experience from time to time the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. But all of that is just a setup because what God wants us to know is the power of his resurrection in our lives. Promise of God to you and to me, it's put it's put well, I think, in Ephesians 1, a prayer that he has, that, that Paul prays for the people, that they would know God's unbelievably great power for us who believe, a power that is like 
the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at God's right hand above all powers and authorities. That's the power for you to believe, and that's the pow that power is the promise that all of your circumstances, all of your problems, all of your pain, all of your challenges, one day certainly will be redeemed. And the more confusing they are, the more difficult they are, the more challenging they are, the more they're like the suffering of Christ in that their redemption will be more glorious and unexpected and inconceivable than anything you can comprehend right here and right now. That's the promise of Christmas for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence with us in the midst of challenges. I thank you for your power for us who believe. I pray for each one here that you would renew their hope in the baby that was born on that first Christmas and the man who died for them on that first Good Friday so that they might experience for themselves the power of his resurrection from that first Easter. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.